Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. on PA Books, Mark Oppenheimer, author of Squirrel Hill. Mark Oppenheimer is the author of Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting and the Soul of a Neighborhood. Uh, now, if you and I walked through the Squirrel Hill neighborhood, what would we see? You'd see a lot of very beautiful houses. You would see... Um, I never saw many squirrels. I always wondered how it got that name. Uh, if it was overrun by squirrels around the time of World War I when it was developed, I don't know. You see a lot of beautiful houses. You'd see a lot of people out walking. It's a, a very walkable neighborhood, a lot of good sidewalks, uh, traffic calming. You would see, if you were on the Forbes and Murray Corridor, Forbes and, and Murray Avenues, which is the, the, the commercial district, you'd see a nice mix of independently owned shops and some chain stores. You'd see two Starbucks, one on Lower Murray and, uh, and one on Forbes, Upper Forbes. You would, uh, but also independent coffee shops uh, mixed in amongst them. You'd see an, uh, an old-timey movie theater. You'd see an independent bookstore. You'd see a lot of people out. Some percentage of them would be identifiable as Orthodox Jews because of what they were wearing. A lot of secular Jews, uh, non-Jews. Gentiles, uh, non-white people. Uh, there's a growing East Asian immigrant population in Squirrel Hill. So you'd see a really, really nice urban mix of people. Why did you decide to approach the story of the Tree of Life shooting by focusing on the neighborhood? I mean, part of it was self-preservation, I suppose. I, as a journalist, have never been particularly interested in uh, in getting inside the head of mass murderers. Although I have spent a good deal of time with white supremacists. I've interviewed uh, a number of white supremacists, neo-Nazis, however they style themselves. And I'm not, I'm not afraid to talk to such people or uh, to spend time with such people. But in this case, this didn't strike me as a particularly interesting subject, the idea of getting inside the head of the alleged killer. From what we knew, this was somebody who had spent a lot of his life in the kind of racist corners of the internet. This was somebody who, um, you know, this was not a, if I can say it, not a, one of the more interesting mass murderers. This was somebody who um, had some crazy theories and a lot of anger and, and so wanted to go kill people. So I was not particularly interested in the killer. Similarly, as much as I think that each of the 11 victims probably deserves a, a book of their own, these are all probably beautiful souls who meant the world to their loved ones. I didn't feel called to write a book about the 11 victims. I can only say that what interested me, given my own history and given my own, um, my own reporting instincts, was the neighborhood. I've always been interested in urbanism. I've been interested in neighborhoods, in tight-knit communities, in what makes um, communities thrive and survive, resilience. Uh, best practices for street design, best practices for neighborhood design. I'm curious what makes one neighborhood better or more functional than another neighborhood. The other obvious thing, of course, is that my dad is from Squirrel Hill, and his dad was from Squirrel Hill, and his dad was from Squirrel Hill. So the Oppenheimers were one of the original families, not just in the Jewish community in Pittsburgh, but but then when it moved into Squirrel Hill around the time of World War One, they moved into Squirrel Hill. So I have a deep personal connection to the 
the neighborhood that made me curious about what the neighborhood was like today. So is this the kind of neighborhood where if you walk down to the store or walk down to a synagogue, you'd encounter people that you knew and stop and have conversations oh, yeah. with people? Yeah, I mean, it really is, it's, it's a village. It's really a village and there are people who lead their whole lives within Squirrel Hill. They work there, they shop there, they live there. Um, they swim at the JCC, they play tennis on, on the public courts. Um, Squirrel Hill is between two very beautiful uh, public parks, um, uh, Frick Park and Shenley Park. And you could do pretty much everything you'd want. There's a public golf course there. So, and and some of the people who live in Squirrel Hill, maybe they work one neighborhood over in Oakland. Uh, maybe they work at one of the universities, Carnegie Mellon or Pitt, which are pretty adjacent to, in one case, are in Squirrel Hill and the other case adjacent to it. But it, it's very contiguous. You can lead a life that's very integrated and that rarely takes you far from it. And there are a lot of people who do. And so, um, and people stay. People like it and people stay. So... It's the kind of neighborhood where people are constantly nodding at someone they see on the street or stopping to say hello. And that was a very important feature in the aftermath of the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in American history. Now, you say in the book that for one neighborhood to contain so much Jewish life, religious and cultural, spiritual and political, liberal and traditional, all within walkable space in the 21st century is exceptionally rare. Why? Because Americans are always on the move, because they leave, because ethnic neighborhoods are increasingly rare. There are fewer and fewer neighborhoods anywhere that are Italian neighborhoods or Irish neighborhoods or, um, you know, Lithuanian neighborhoods. The, ex the biggest exception, of course, would be uh, black neighborhoods. I mean, there is a history of residential segregation that has persisted until this day. Um, but even when you look at second or third generation Hispanic Americans, they tend to move out of the area of original settlement and they go where people go. They go into um, suburbs and exurbs where they can get, you know, better plots of land, three car garages, room for a swimming pool. Um, Americans are always on the move. So, and that's been, and that's been true of, of Jewish populations, urban Jewish populations as well. So you look at a place like New York City where the Lower East Side of New York was the, I think the most populous Jewish center in the world in 1920. There were something like half a million Jews on the Lower East Side, which was way more than any other place in the world. And um, today there's probably several tens of thousands there, but but nothing like the half a million that were there. Where did they move? They moved north to the Grand Concourse in the Bronx, which back then was far less settled. They moved um, across the bridge to Brooklyn, which back then was much more, you know, uh, much more rural in parts. And then they moved farther out onto Long Island, or they moved out past the Bronx to Westchester. And and very few families remained on the Lower East Side. They were just on the move. Um, Squirrel Hill, by contrast, has been a Jewish center, a center of Jewish life for three to four generations now. And that's, that's very rare. There are the, they are the exception. I mean, the reason that they are, the reasons that they are exceptional are much debated and, and not fully understood. But, but, um, but as to why other neighborhoods aren't like that, it's because other neighborhoods have just been typically American in that people leave in search of something else. Did you get a sense uh, from talking to people in the community about why maybe they didn't move on to other parts of the, out to the suburbs or other places? It's a very hotly debated topic and there are a lot, I, I say in the book, there are many theories, which means that nobody really is sure if any one of them is right. And uh, so what are some of the theories? Um, you know, one of the theories is that for a long time, Jews weren't welcome in the suburbs, so they were hemmed in. 
but that actually doesn't hold up. It turns out there's no real historical evidence of restrictive anti-Jewish covenants in the suburbs, even if some of them had some social anti-Semitism, there's no proof that Jews weren't allowed to buy properties in those suburbs. And some of the suburbs were always uh, Jew friendly. So that's not it. Um, a theory I hear a lot is that if you leave Pittsburgh for the suburbs, but still work in Pittsburgh, the traffic is so terrible getting through um, the two tunnels uh, into the city from the from the suburbs that people don't even want to brave it. But that actually doesn't hold up at all because it didn't, you know, the extraordinary amount of morning traffic in Boston from the suburbs, from, from say Newton or Watertown into Boston, did not stop Boston Jews from leaving. They left and they either take public transit into the city or they, um, they suffer an hour or 90 minute commute. And that's true in Atlanta, that's true in greater Chicago, that's true in Los Angeles. So unless the argument is that Pittsburgh Jews were uniquely sensitive to traffic, that doesn't really hold up either. I think there's some other theories that have a little more heft to them. Um, one of them is that the public high school in uh, Squirrel Hill, Taylor Alderdice High School, which is has a kind of legendary status among Pittsburgh Jewry because so many people went there. Um, stayed good and stayed appealing to people for a long time. There wasn't the sense that you had to leave to get good public schools. So that's one piece of it. Um, another piece of it would be the the good housing stock. There are a lot of large houses in Squirrel Hill that, um, that people wanted. And a lot of people who had left the city uh, when they had children would come back to Squirrel Hill, sometimes live with their parents, sometimes buy their parents' house, and their parents would move into a mother-in-law apartment, for example. So it was a good a good transition for multi-generational Squirrel Hill people to kind of, to, to return. Uh, so there are a number of theories. Uh, there was also less white flight, and partly that's because there are fewer black people in Pittsburgh than there are in places like Cleveland and Detroit. So to the extent that anti-black racism in, in real estate among both the sellers of real estate and the buyers drove white flight, which included Jewish flight in many American cities, that didn't happen as much in Pittsburgh. Uh, I also always point to the mixed housing stock, the fact that you can get a place to live in Squirrel Hill in one of the many apartment buildings that might be $150,000 or $200,000. You could also get a, you know, a quite a roomy, large, stately house for $750 or a million and everything in between. It's, it's a place where if you want to live there, you will find you will find some sort of housing for your budget because it's such a varied housing stock. So there are a lot of reasons why it remained an appealing place. The other, the last one I would add is that the, the Jewish community in Pittsburgh actually had a, a bit of soul searching in the 1980s and 90s when a lot of their buildings, for example, the Jewish Community Center, the Jewish Home for the Aged, the Jewish Social Work Agency, needed to be refurbished or rebuilt because they were all 70 or 80 years old and and weren't functional anymore. And at that moment, any community has a choice. The choice is, do you rebuild in place and continue to commit to that neighborhood for another 50 years, or do you move your building somewhere else? And in most American cities where there was a large Jewish population, the, the elders, so to speak, moved the centers of Jewish life to the suburbs when they thought that the people were going to the suburbs. And in Pittsburgh, that didn't happen. In Pittsburgh, they rebuilt the JCC, the Jewish Home for the Aged, the Jewish Day Schools, the Social Work Agency in Squirrel Hill. So there was also a, a, an element of leadership, of people consciously deciding we're going to stay here. And I think that did make a difference. Can you talk a little bit about the Tree of Life Synagogue? Uh, what were the congregations that were there? What was it like? Right. Well, um, as you indicate, there was more than one congregation that was hit on Saturday, October 27th, 2018. 
this was a, a historically conservative congregation, part of the conservative movement of American Judaism, though no longer affiliated with it. Tree of Life, uh, very old, one of the oldest synagogues in Pittsburgh. In the past couple decades, it had shrunk from 900, maybe 1,000 families to under 250. So it had suffered a lot of membership loss. It was an aging congregation and a shrinking congregation. And so in the last few years, it had begun to rent space to two other congregations. One was a conservative congregation called New Light, which uh, met in the basement. And the other one was a reconstructionist Jewish congregation. That's a progressive wing of Judaism, uh, reconstructionist, or now they say reconstructing Judaism. That's the new branding. And they met on the first floor. So there were three congregations in the building that morning. Um, and uh, there were 22 people inside, 21 Jews and one non-Jewish custodian. And of the 21 Jews inside, 11 were murdered, including seven from Tree of Life, the landlord congregation, three from New Light, and one from Dor Hadash. Uh, so three congregations were hit, um, both the congregation that owns the building and that's identified with the building, and two tenants' congregations as well. So it was a tragedy for three different Jewish worship communities. Uh, take us into that neighborhood on that Saturday morning. What, what would it have been like as people were, were starting their day? Well, it's only a minority of Jews who go to synagogue, a small minority, on any given Shabbat, any given Sabbath. So there would have been um, you know, some street life of people going to synagogue. A lot of people go to synagogue late. Um, they're the people who show up only for, for Kiddush, which is the, the luncheon. Uh, one joke is that these are the JFK Jews just for Kiddush, just as there are Christians at Christian churches who show up just for coffee hour. I mean, this is a well-known phenomenon in religious life. So <clears throat> when the shooting started before 10 in the morning, even among the people who were going to go show up at synagogue, many of them had not already because if services go from about 9.30 to 11.30, there are a lot of people who show up at 10.30 or 11. And so they wouldn't have been there yet. So what you were talking about was the people who were already on the move going to, to services at this building or at other buildings were either the most devout, the people who wanted to be there for the most, for the, the biggest part of the service that they could. Or I point out in my book, uh, people who were lonely, people who wanted to get to services because it's the one time that week that they saw a lot of other people, um, people with nowhere else to go. Uh, two of the people who were murdered were a pair of um, intellectually disabled brothers in their 50s for whom synagogue community was was a very important part of their social lives. It's where they were known and, and felt useful and helpful. So to me, there's something very poignant about the, the early morning nature of the attack because it really did target those people who, uh, who got there early. It also included, you know, includes people who show up to help open the doors, Two of the men who were killed were in the kitchen. They were preparing the lunch afterwards. They were slicing you know, food, slicing bread, preparing the coffee. So it's people who are eager to help, people who, for whom this is a central part of their lives, some of just the best people, to be perfectly blunt. So that's who would, would have been in this synagogue and other synagogues at this time. There was a large Orthodox congregation, Sherry Torah, that had a bar mitzvah that morning. So there were probably two to 300 people at that building, and it's... um. It's a stroke of good luck that the killer didn't go to Sherry Torah, where he, with his automatic weapons, would have been able to kill many, many more people. There just would have been 
dozens, indeed hundreds of Jews all packed in fairly tight and opening fire on that group would have been much deadlier than having to kind of hunt for and hunt down, you know, 21 different people over three different floors at Tree of Life, which was a relatively empty building. And then, of course, there were plenty of people going to work out at, uh, at the gym and pick up their morning paper and walk their dogs. A lot of kind of that morning neighborhood life that you see that you would see on the Upper West Side of Manhattan or in West Rogers Park in Chicago or in, you know, Chestnut Hill in Philadelphia, kind of middle class, mid-sized city urban life on a Saturday morning. It was drizzly uh, that day. It was a little bit little bit cool out. It rained off and on that day, a late October day in Pittsburgh. So it wasn't a, a beautiful day, but it was uh, it was tempered enough to get outside. Is there any evidence as to why he chose this particular synagogue? Yeah. Uh, again, this is all alleged. He hasn't come to trial yet. But uh, from everything we know, and I, I report this in my book, we do know why he chose this synagogue. He, he had an extraordinary antipathy to immigrants who he felt were destroying America, and he had the belief that Jews were responsible for large levels of immigration, not of Jews, but of other people, that Jews let in immigrants who then undermined the country. So he wanted to attack Jews because he felt that Jews supported immigration, and he wanted to get at immigration by getting at Jews. And he had gone on the web, and he had seen that uh, a number of Jewish congregations across the country had um, had celebrated something called National Refugee Shabbat, a, a Saturday morning services that was a service that was dedicated to honoring or welcoming refugees uh, from other countries. And one of the congregations that had done that was Dor Hadash, which whose address was at the Tree of Life Synagogue because they were one of the tenant congregations that rented there. So we went online, figured out that Dor Hadash was pro-immigrant, pro-refugee, wanted to kill members of Dor Hadash. They were housed at Tree of Life. He saw that address. And he drove to Tree of Life and uh, and went inside and, and opened fire. So we have a pretty precise understanding of exactly why he targeted the people that he did. Now, as you uh, interviewed people, were they open to, to talking about their experiences on that day? Most people were. I, I was deeply moved by the extraordinary levels of um, of uh, of openness that I encountered. Of the. 11 people who were inside and survived. I ended up interviewing nine of them. Of the 11 who died, I spoke with family members of, I think, eight of the 11. And then I spoke with over 200 other people from Squirrel Hill and people who were around the synagogue that day, people who had friends who were inside, people who were active in various efforts afterwards to, to help comfort people or heal or prepare bodies for burial or cook for families, all, all sorts of things. Um, and I would say that you know, well over 90% of the people whom I wanted to speak with were willing and, and happy to speak with me. Now, one of the survivors of the attack was Joe Charney, and, and you say that uh, he was 90 years old, and you say that the, the killer saw Charney and that the two men looked at each other in the eye and the killer did not shoot. Uh, did did uh, Joe Charney comment about that? what that kind of experience was like for him? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is that, of course, everything I reported about what happened inside the building that day which I, you know, learned from my own original interviews, but also from comments that people had made that day to other reporters. And I give a lot of credit to other reporters, newspaper, print, radio, et cetera, for getting some of the on the ground stories went before I ever got to town. Um, everything is, is 
is a best guess, I would say, an informed guess, but memories are faulty. In some cases, stories conflicted about what happened that morning. There is certain stuff that the FBI knows that, that we won't find out until the killer goes to trial, uh, which has not happened yet. So I do my best to reconstruct what happened that day. And Joe Charney does say that the killer saw him and didn't shoot. And I, I don't think he has a theory on that. I mean, it, it, the killer, there were lots of people running around. There was chaos. And Charney feels that the killer saw him and then just aimed elsewhere. And it, it could have been something as simple as he saw Charney and, but then heard someone moving closer to him and decided to aim elsewhere. And the truth is we'll never really know exactly what happened um, minute to minute. There are definite gaps in memory and flaws in memory. And as a journalist, I just do my best to both reconstruct what happened, but also then to have a certain level of humility that you know I probably got something wrong. Now, as the, the shooting was taking place, uh, was word starting to spread throughout the community at that point? Oh, yeah, the SWAT team was there pretty quickly. I mean, the the uh, at least one person from inside the building took out his cell phone and called 911. So that happened, you know, almost instantaneously. And then police started to arrive, SWAT started to arrive, um, and they cordoned off the area. And they, you know, as new people pulled up into the parking lot, they sent them away and said there's an active shooter situation inside. So, you know, within 20 minutes or so, you could tell from the outside of the building what was happening. And within an hour, I think probably almost everyone in the neighborhood knew. Now, the exception, of course, is that Orthodox Jews who don't use technology on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, often didn't know. If they were walking around Squirrel Hill, they probably heard by word of mouth. But if you were an Orthodox Jew in New Jersey or Melbourne, Australia or Toronto, uh, to pick three areas that have large Orthodox populations, you wouldn't have your phone on, you wouldn't have your TV on, you wouldn't have a radio on on the Sabbath. So there were people around the world who didn't find out until Saturday night, and then they found out that a particular cousin or you know, friend was in a neighborhood where there had been a mass killing. Um, but most people in Squirrel Hill knew within the hour, I would say. How long was the shooting uh, before he, uh, the killer was apprehended? Gosh, I, I honestly forget. My recollection is that um, that they date the shooting from about 9.47 a.m. or so when he entered the building. And I think or 9.50 maybe was the first call to uh, 911. And then, you know, he was killed, I want to say, by, by or not killed, excuse me, he wasn't killed. He was shot and taken to the hospital, and he's still alive. Um, by 11 a.m. I mean, the whole the whole incident was it was an hour or so. Now, after the police got there, they um, approached the front door, and there was a moment when, as I understand it, when the killer was trying to leave the building and saw that the police were there and fired out the door toward them and then ran back inside. And so, a lot of that hour was the police slowly entering the building and cornering the killer, and eventually uh, wounding him. Though. Several police were wounded as well in the effort, though no police were killed, thank goodness. But, um, you know, the it is likely the case that the that the Jews were all murdered, I think, within the first 20 minutes or half an hour. But again, I'm this was foggy even then, and I'm, I could be wrong about this. And that the, the second half an hour was really, they got the people out of the building, but then the police were inside trying to corner and eventually apprehend the alleged killer. Now, you say in the book that uh, one of the things you were curious about was uh, what happens when the cameras and the police tape are gone and what happens in the community. So uh, once he was apprehended, what began to unfold in the community? 
a lot. One of the things that happens after a mass killing is that a lot of people want to give money. So the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh opened up a box, is, is the term, on their website, saying if you'd like to donate to help the victims, you can give here. And millions of dollars were raised that way. Uh, an Iranian-American uh, named Shai Khatiri, who lives in Washington, D.C., opened up a GoFundMe campaign on the website GoFundMe.org that ended up raising over a million dollars for the victims' families. The, so there's money that comes in. People come. There are there were Jews and non-Jews from around the country uh, who came in just to bear witness. I talked, excuse me, I didn't talk to, but a colleague of mine talked to, and I wrote about a Baptist minister from Florida who, who flew up just to pray with people. Um, you know, before long, there was a African-American woman from Minneapolis who flew in with pies that she had baked for people. People, there was a woman from New Jersey who drove up with her dachshunds, with her therapy dogs, to try to be of use by sharing the dogs and their love with people. Support animals are a big thing now, as you might know. So there, there's a lot that gets set in motion. One of the things I talk about in the book is that to have a proper Jewish burial is quite a process. And there are local uh, holy societies, they're called Hevra Kadishas, which literally means holy society, though you might translate it as burial society, that um, immediately uh, go to the site of death, clean up the bodies. Now, in this case, the bodies were first taken to uh, the medical examiner's office because it's a crime, so there has to be an autopsy. But then, in addition to preparing the bodies according to special Jewish rites of how to wash a body, how to how to properly sew a body into a shroud and so forth and so on. It's also Jewish practice that all parts of the body have to be buried, including any organic matter that might be on the floor, like blood or muscle tissue or bones um, that, you know, bone shards that result from you know, being attacked violently with, with guns. So these holy societies spent several days cleaning the site of the crime and, and scraping up methodically all the parts of the people so that they could have, so that the, this organic matter, this body matter could have proper burials. And that's that's a lot of the quiet drama that unfolded after the killing. Now, there's a photo in the book uh, of Tammy Hepps, Kate and Simone Rothstein uh, that shows them embracing each other and reading from a book. What's the story behind that photo? I spent a lot of time talking to Tammy Hepps. She is a... Um, a Squirrel Hill, not a native, but someone who's been there about 10 years and active in a different Jewish congregation. Tree of Life was not her community, but she was active in a congregation just down the street, uh, very active in the Jewish community. And the morning of the killing, um, one of the things she did, in addition to a lot of other things, she was very active that morning, but that afternoon, one of the things she did was get her book of Psalms um, and go outside the synagogue, outside Tree of Life to read Psalms because it's it's practice in Judaism to um, to guard unburied Jewish bodies, both physically to be near them because you don't want to leave bodies alone until they're buried. The idea is to keep them company, but also to read Psalms in their presence. And so she took her little her little booklet of the Book of Psalms and was standing there in that photo with her friends, uh, Kate and Simone Rothstein, reading Psalms outside the building while the bodies were still inside. That was as close as she could get to the bodies. And a, and a, a photographer came up and sla snapped a picture, or actually I think a number of photographers snapped pictures, and they were immediately sent around the world and syndicated to all sorts of different newspapers and magazines. And it kind of, it, to my mind, it became one of the iconic photographs of, of that day. 
Now, one of the businesses that is in the community is a Starbucks, and uh, as the events were one unfolding, of the one of the businesses in every community, right? Right, right. <laughs> uh, as word was going around that there was an active shooter. Now, you write about the, the manager there trying to figure out whether they should close, whether they should open. Uh, what was the thought process there? Yeah, I talked to Melissa Lysot, who was the manager of that Starbucks at the corner of, um, of Forbes and Shady, which is, I think, the more, I think, the busier or certainly the more centrally located, the more visible of the two Starbucks in Squirrel Hill. And um, she, yeah, she, had, she called her regional manager, said, what should I do? And the manager said, I leave it up to you. And, you know, for there were obviously people who wanted to leave that Starbucks and go home because it was scary. But there were also people who wanted to get off the street and felt that the Starbucks was a place of refuge. So she was just bopping around all morning, talking to her customers, making sure that they were taken care of, letting them know that they were going to lock this door, but leave this door open. And um, she herself is... Uh, was raised a Presbyterian. She's not Jewish, but she that Starbucks has a large Jewish clientele, including a lot of Orthodox Jews. And she told me uh, the funny story about how important it is if you're managing a Starbucks with a large Orthodox Jewish clientele to know which of your products are kosher and which ones aren't kosher because the, the clients will ask. So she had learned a lot about Judaism and Jewish dietary practices over the years uh, as the manager of this Starbucks. And um, and she had a lot of affection for her Jewish clientele and really wanted to do right by them. So it became kind of a gathering place that day. I also talk in the book about how a bunch of high school seniors gathered at that Starbucks in the early afternoon and spent the whole afternoon there planning the vigil that they would hold that evening uh, at, at sunset at the corner of Forbes and Murray, where they, they ended the Jewish Sabbath with Havdalah, which is a, a candle lighting ritual that ends the Sabbath. You begin and end the Sabbath with two different candle lighting rituals a day apart. And there were a bunch of teenagers who planned that event at that Starbucks. So it became a central community place. And then, of course, there's also the the art in the in the windows, because after the, the day ended, she came into work the next day or the day after and realized she wanted to do something to commemorate that day. So she engaged a friend of hers an artist, a local artist, Roman Catholic, by the way, again, not Jewish, and, and said, would you paint some sort of tribute to the Jews in the windows? And she worked with uh, a, a Jewish man who taught her enough about Jewish calligraphy and, and printing and orthography that she created this beautiful triptych over three windows of Jewish symbols, a star of David and a dove and a tree of life with the words love and hope and peace, um, ahava, uh, tikva, and chesed, in the windows, both in English, but then also in Hebrew script. So that Starbucks, where that art is still in the windows, has become a very central uh, part of the story that I like to tell. Now, another figure you talk about in the book is a graphic designer, uh, graphic designer Tom Hines, who designed one of the iconic images that, that yeah. would be associated with this. So what, what motivated him? Yeah, Tom Hines, no relation to Hines Ketchup, which is a Pittsburgh company. Uh, it's spelled differently. Uh, Tim Hines, excuse me, is a graphic designer who, again, not Jewish, um, lapsed Lutheran, no particular connection to Squirrel Hill or to the Jews in Squirrel Hill. But he was driving that day and he, listening on the radio to what was going on, and he was just so moved and so disturbed. And so he um, you know, he didn't know what, what to, didn't know what to do. And then he got home. And he had the thought, well, I'm a graphic designer. You know, I, should, I should design something. And he fired up his Macintosh and began fiddling around and trying to create an image that somehow captured both 
Pittsburgh and Jewry, you know, Pittsburgh and its Jews, Pittsburgh embracing the Jews. So for Pittsburgh, he started with the logo of the Pittsburgh Steelers, which many people will, will of course, recognize um, pretty easily. It's a very famous logo. It has the three, um, they look like stars, but they're actually called hypocycloids. Uh, it's a different geometric shape. And one is yellow and one is red and one is blue. And then he replaced the yellow one at the top with a Star of David, this iconic symbol of Judaism. And then he replaced the word Steelers with the word stronger than hate, which kind of echoes some of the other local mottos you hear after tragedies like Boston Strong, which you heard after the Boston Marathon bombing. So stronger than hate with the Pittsburgh Steelers logo mashed up with a Star of David became this symbol. He posted it to Facebook. It went around the world a trillion times over the next 24 hours. People shared it. People made it their Facebook image. The next day at the Steelers game, people were holding up posters with that sign. It ended up on posters in the windows of all the stores in Squirrel Hill. The Steelers put it on their cleats for at least a week. Uh, you saw it on babies' onesies. You saw it on yarmulkes, on, on skull caps that Jewish men were wearing. So it became this kind of iconic, awesome thing. Again, coming out of the mind and the keyboard of this, you know, lapsed Lutheran, non-Jewish graphic designer who just wanted to be a good ally. Now, one of the terms you use in the book that I, I had not come across before is trauma tourists. And uh, I'm sure some of these people probably fit into that category there. But uh, was this a phenomena that just kind of happened here after the shooting? No, everywhere. It's something, it's an American thing. It's probably a worldwide thing. But everywhere there is a um, anything terrible that happens on, on a national scale, a mass killing or, um, you know, in some cases, a natural disaster or a plane crash. There are people who want to be near it. It's, it's a strange thing. And part of it is very well-meaning. They want to go and help as best they can. But it's also an urge some people have to be close to tragedy. So there are people who travel around going to these different places and laying flowers at graves or um, showing up at prayer services or at funerals for people they didn't know. And in Pittsburgh, they... There was just a lot of talk about these people who came to town, again, trying to be helpful, but sometimes getting in the way, because especially if they were religious Jews and they wanted kosher food when they got there and they wanted lodging, often with other religious Jews who would understand their dietary practices, and they wanted places to pray. And so there were a lot of people who arrived in short order who were really getting in the way as the community was trying to bury its dead. And... One woman told me that the message she started giving to friends and acquaintances from out of town who reached out saying, what can I do to help, was the thing you can do to help is, is stay at home. We really are, we have it under control. We have a lot of support here in Pittsburgh. It's a very tight-knit community. You know, plenty of Jews who, and Gentiles who were not members of Tree of Life are nevertheless stepping in to help with people at Tree of Life. And, um, and what we don't need are trauma tourists or people who think they're doing a good deed, but in fact are actually getting in the way. And that was something you saw a lot of in Pittsburgh. Now, one of the figures uh, also who showed up was uh, Greg Zanis, who was known for uh, creating wooden crosses at, at other yeah. shooting sites. Uh, uh, who was he and how do people react to him showing up? Yeah, I mean, Greg Zanis was kind of in a category of his own. He had this one-man nonprofit called Crosses for Losses that uh, was pretty nationally famous. There were stories about him on 60 Minutes when he died in uh, 2020. I fortunately was able to interview him before he died, but he died of cancer not too long thereafter. And uh, he, um, his obituary was in the New York Times. I mean, he was a kind of well-known, uh, well-known dude. Uh, 
starting in the 1990s when there was an episode of gun violence in his own extended family. He began as a carpenter uh, by trade, crafting white crosses for people who had lost a loved one, and he would write the name of the deceased on the cross and give it to them as a token of gesture of com to comfort them. And then he began traveling around and doing it for communities beyond Chicago. He was from Aurora, Illinois, just outside Chicago. And he started going to the, to the sites of mass killings, like Columbine or Parkland. He started going to sites of natural disasters um, the, and, and so forth, and um, murders. And he basically spent um, the last you know, 25 years of his life on the road, driving around with this pickup truck with wood in the back and white paint and showing up, you know, going from disaster to disaster, showing up and then building these crosses and putting them in the ground. But the interesting thing about him was, even though he himself was an evangelical Christian and that was his tradition, he was very sensitive to the needs of people from other traditions. And he would, um, if, it were, if they were Jewish victims, as I report in the book, he wouldn't put crosses in the ground. He, he would affix a Star of David, a Jewish six-pointed star, to the front of, and back of the crosses, so that, um, so or the, the front of the cross anyway, the part you could see, so that what he was putting on the ground was a more identifiably Jewish symbol, and he would use a crescent moon if the victim was Muslim, and so forth and so on. Different symbols if they were Sikh or if they were something else, Shinto, Baha'i, you name it. And he was very conversant in these different um, cultural symbols for different religions. So he became a kind of uh, universal interfaith figure in the aftermath of mass killings. And I describe in the book how Tammy Hepps, walking past Tree of Life, comes upon him literally pulling up in his truck and tries to figure out why he's there and what he's doing. And initially, she's quite worried that he's going to put all these crosses in front of the synagogue, which would be so culturally insensitive. But then she sees that he has these wooden six-pointed stars, and she puts together what he's going to do and realizes that he's actually being much more sensitive than initially she had given him credit for. Now, you mentioned the Alderdice High School uh, that was in the community there. Uh, so this happened on a Saturday. Monday morning comes. Uh, how did the yeah. school handle, how did handle this? Yeah, there was a lot of drama there because the official word from the school administrators was don't make your class about it. And there is no, let me back up and say, there's no good way to handle Monday school after some sort of terrible disaster in the neighborhood because there are some students who, for whom it would be re-traumatizing to talk about it. What they want is to have a normal school day where they learn geometry and Spanish and U.S. history and not to spend the day rehashing the death. And so the sensitive thing for those students is not to talk about the death. The, um, but then there are other students for whom trying to go about and pretend that the day is normal and talk about U.S. history and geometry is uh, the wrong thing. They need to keep processing what happened. So what the school did was say classes are going to go about as normal, but if students want to talk to a counselor, there's you know an office they can go to. And you know, that worked as well as it worked. And it, it, there was probably nothing that would have worked better, maybe something that would have worked worse. But what I talked about was there was a meeting of the Black Students Association that afternoon after classes ended. Um, and a lot of the African-American students were baffled by how much attention uh, was given to the deaths of the, these 11 Jews, most of them elderly, or all of them over 50. None of them... Um, connected to the school or, or to their lives. And some of the black students were making the point that there are deaths in the black community all the time um, in, 
in one recent case, there had been a high school student shot shot by a police officer that prior summer, uh, just outside the city limits, that don't get this kind of attention. And they were wondering if what they were seeing was that white and Jewish lives count for more than black lives. And of course, it's more complicated than that because mass killings always get more attention than the slow drip of daily killings. And you see this, by the way, in the black community as well, that a, a mass killing like at Mother Emanuel Church in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, gets a lot of attention. But the daily death toll in a city with a high black on black crime rate like Chicago or Baltimore doesn't impinge on the national consciousness as much. So it is more complicated. But nevertheless, they were raising a, an important point about how they saw it from their perspective. And Alderdice has a large Jewish population, but it also has a large black population. And so I talked to the students about that and how they navigated those tensions. Now, uh, then-President Trump uh, also organized uh, a visit to the site itself. Uh, you have a community that's going through uh, a trauma experience. It's not unusual for presidents to show up at, at places of natural disasters or shootings. Uh, what was that experience like for the community? Yeah, uh, Donald Trump announced on Saturday night that he would be going to Pittsburgh. A lot of people in the community didn't want him to come or they didn't want him to come yet. Uh, there were some people who felt it would be more appropriate if he came after all the bodies were buried and so that his arrival with all the tumult that comes with a presidential arrival and all the streets that are shut down didn't um, conflict with people's attempts to get to funerals and to houses of mourning. He did come on Tuesday. There was uh, He met with the rabbi of Tree of Life for about 20 minutes. He then visited um, some injured police officers in the hospital. Um, and, and then he left town pretty quickly thereafter. There was a very large protest. Several thousand people protested his, um, his arrival. Um, it was a peaceful protest, nothing violent. One person was arrested for sitting down in front of the motorcade and refusing to move. But um, you know, someone, someone suggested that it might have been the largest uh, assembly of Jews ever in Pittsburgh history, that, that the number of Jews at that protest might have been larger than the number of Jews who ever showed up for Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur or any major Jewish holiday in any given synagogue, that getting that many Jews together in one place was something that only Donald Trump could do by showing up uh, and being protested. So it was a very painful day for a lot of people. Uh, that was that Tuesday was, in fact, the first day of funerals. There were funerals in Squirrel Hill Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, 11 people buried over four days. Uh, so that was a, a painful memory for a lot of people. Now, Many of Trump's supporters and even not people who didn't vote for him but who were glad that he was coming made the point that if he hadn't come, he would have been criticized for that. He was criticized for coming, but if the president hadn't come to pay his respects, he would have been criticized for that as well. But then some people would reply, well, yes, but he could have come later after the bodies were buried. So, again, there was probably no perfect answer there, but, um, but it was definitely an opportunity for a lot of, a lot of community discussion around that. Now, uh, another uh, reaction to the shooting was uh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, uh, the editor, David uh, Shribman, came up with an idea of uh, having a headline in Hebrew. Uh, what did the headline yeah. say? The headline is, is the first line of the Kaddish, which, among other things, functions as a prayer that mourners recite in, um, in, in Hebrew. It's, it's actually Aramaic. It's the language of, of you know, first century Palestine, of Jesus and, and the Jews of that era. And the line says, Yitkadalva Yitkadashimerabah, which, which means um, roughly translated sort of magnified and exalted uh, should be the name, the name of God. So it's a, it's a, it's a hymn to God, but it's used as a 
mourner's prayer. Um, and it's said uh, in the aftermath of someone dying and then on the first an- on the anniversaries of that person's death forever. Uh, so David Tribman, the editor of the Post-Gazette, had this idea of using that first line, which is recognizable to not to every Jew, but to, to many, many Jews, as the headline that Friday, the last day of funerals. And it was a, a very kind of beautiful gesture that people were really moved by. He, uh, he didn't know the Hebrew lettering for it. He had to call his rabbi and ask his rabbi to send over a picture of the lettering. And then they didn't have a Hebrew typeface, a Hebrew font at the Post-Gazette. So they had to kind of build something out of scratch. But, but they got it out the door. And uh, I think it's one of the great American newspaper headlines. Now, earlier you talked about uh, people setting up GoFundMe uh, accounts for to raise money, and uh, you also talked about the role of federations in Jewish communities around the United States and, and in Pittsburgh. Uh, what is a federation? What, what is that role? Well, most or many Jewish communities uh, have a local federation. It's the sort of the federation system, and it evolved out of old kind of uh, communal charities where people, as in many immigrant communities, would pool their money to support the local church or synagogue that served their community, the boys club or girls club, the funeral home, so forth and so on, burial societies. And in in the Jewish world, uh, they often take the name the Federation. So you have the, the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh, where I live, you have the Jewish Federation of Greater New Haven, the Jewish Federation of Boston, and so forth and so on. And they are very large charities. In fact, the Jewish Federation of New York City is one of the largest charities in the world, the Federation of New York City alone. And they raise money and do all sorts of things with it. They support uh, religious schools. They support efforts to resettle refugees. They support um, meals for people who don't have enough food. They support housing for people who aren't housed. They support uh, services for the elderly. And then they are also able to swing into action when there is a special need. So in the aftermath of something like a mass killing in the Jewish community, the Federation is the natural place where people go to give money if they want to somehow help, or they go there and say, how can I help? The, the Federation becomes a kind of a focal point, a clearinghouse for, for relief efforts. And they, did, and they did do that role here, and they did it really, really well. And not all communities have an organization like that. So it was something pretty specific to... Um, to Jewish life that worked very well for the Jews in this case. Now, once, uh, once all this money was coming in, who decided how it would be distributed? There was a, well, it was tricky, right? Because the initial um, donations that came in, if they came in as checks, there was often nothing on the memo line saying what the check was for. If they came in as, um, you know, as credit card donations, it was often to the, a fund that would say, you know, for the for the victims, families, and all those who need support. They were all of the initial funds were set up imprecisely because they were set up in a hurry, and so they were very vaguely worded. So the question when the money comes in is, what do you do with it? Do you give it? Let's say someone is killed. One one of the victims leaves behind a widow. How much of it does that widow get? Um, how much of it do children of the victims get? These were elderly people. Many of them had children. Um, do the children get all the money? Do, do the children get some of the money, but then a widow or widower gets more money? What if they uh, never had children? Do their siblings or parents get the money? Does anyone get money who uh, is not related to a victim? Maybe people who were in the synagogue that day. Remember, there were 
11 survivors. How much money do you get for being close to a tragedy but not dying? Right? If you're one of the people who was inside but got out, do you get money to help compensate you for the trauma you suffered? If so, that money is coming out of the money that a widow or widower would get, right? How much money should you get that comes out of the funds that go to people who actually lost a spouse? And then what happens if you were, if you're a member of the congregation and the congregation, Tree of Life, that owns this building that now needs major work because there are bullet holes in the walls, there's blood, there's blood on the floors. A lot of renovation has to be done before this building is usable again. And it, by the way, it still is not back in use. It still has fencing around it and is, is uh, just you know vacant all the time. So should the board of the synagogue get some money to help it rebuild? Because otherwise, where's that money going to come from? You know, where are they going to, how are they going to fund uh, a million dollar uh, tab to renovate unless it comes from this money? So, and it was over $7 million that ended up coming in. So the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh um, chartered a, an independent committee that they were related to, but it was technically independent. And, uh, and basically tasked them with deciding on a formula that relatives get X amount, people who were in the building but survived get X amount, the congregations get so much, people who were on the grounds of the building but didn't go inside but maybe were traumatized because they came so close to being victimized, right? The kind of the terror of having nearly missed going inside might be worth some money. And they came up with a formula to break out how much you got if you were in each of these specific groups. They were advised by Ken Feinberg, who has become a sort of specialist in this. He advised the 9-11 Commission and also the Boston Commission after the marathon and, and many others. And he's become the go-to guy to help you figure out how to apportion survivor money. And he consulted with the Pittsburgh group as well. And, and they, but they ultimately ended up on deciding on their own formula. But that was a, a very big process. And you say that uh, it made everyone happy. How, how did... How does that happen? Amazingly, well, I, I don't I don't know how it happens. Amazingly, nobody complained. And part of that, I think, is that this is such a tight-knit community and, and there really was a, a, a spirit of cooperation in the aftermath. The other thing I would say that's so important to remember here is that as horrible as this was, and it was profoundly terrible, these were all older people. And I do believe that's less traumatic for a community than what Newtown went through with, you know, 25 first graders and a, and a teacher being killed at Sandy Hook. Um, losing six-year-olds is just powerfully terrible. And, and I, I think in some ways you don't recover from it. Um, not that you recover from losing your elderly mother, but um, there's a difference between losing an elderly parent who's in his or her 70s or 80s or 90s and, and losing your six-year-old child. And the grief that um, I think in some ways still suffuses Newtown, which by the way is, is 20 miles from where I live, um, I think was more overpowering. First of all, so many, you know, 26 children and again, six-year-olds and the idea of six-year-olds being mowed down in their classroom, I think is, is does not admit of any resolution. And of course, then, you know, with Alex Jones coming in with his horrible conspiracy theories and, and the way in which members of the far right have turned on those families, which is so reprehensible, has made things even worse. But um, in many cities after a mass killing, you do have um, tension over who gets the money. And there are various reasons that Squirrel Hill was able to avoid that. Now, the sense of unity that, that was uh, 
created in the community as a result of this. Uh, is that something that has persisted over time? Uh, does it still exist? Well, keep in mind, so we were, we're at about three years and change since the killings happened, and half of that time has been COVID time. So it's, it's hard to say what's going on in any community during COVID, but yes, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a community where there has never been the, uh, in the three years since, there has never been the fracturing or the, um, the cannibalism, people turning on each other and, and venting anger on each other. There also have not been suicides attributable to this. There haven't been people, as there have been in some communities after mass killings, who have taken their lives after you know, suffering from survivor's guilt or deep depression. This is a community that seems in various ways to have uh, had more resilience than some communities do, and, and that continues to be true. Uh, what happened to the three congregations that, that were using that building? They're all meeting elsewhere. Um, both Tree of Life and Dor Hadash are meeting about two miles away at Rodef Sholem, which is a historic uh, reform temple on the very, very far edge of Squirrel Hill, just across the street from the edge of Squirrel Hill in a neighborhood called Oakland, but about two miles away. And they're both meeting there. They're renting space there. And then um, uh, New Light is meeting at Beth Shalom, which is uh, closer, probably about a half a mile from uh, Tree of Life, a little bit of a walk, and they've rented space there as well. So they've all found rental space in very large buildings of congregations that used to have somewhat larger memberships, but now have some excess space as Tree of Life had had excess space. And they're meeting there and, and doing well. And I think one of the questions is, who will go back to this building once it's actually been, been renovated? There is um, a plan now underway after a long time to raise money and renovate this building and bring the congregation back there. Uh, New Light has decided never to go back. They are staying at Beth Shalom, where they have uh, nicely outfitted one of the chapels there, a small small extra chapel there as their own. I don't know what Dor Hadash will do. And Tree of Life probably will go back, but it'll be interesting because it's already been three years. It'll be several more before they get back inside. So after five or six years of worshiping in this other rented space, they may feel more comfortable at this other space. And you know, to then have to go back to this renovated building that doesn't feel like the building they last left, maybe it'll be nicer in some ways. It'll be brought up to code and, and have nice new windows and stained glass and all the stuff. But, but it, for five or six years, it won't have been theirs. So I don't know what what sort of Jewish life will go on inside the renovated Tree of Life whenever it comes back online. Now, a few months after this, on April 27th, 2019, there was another shooting at a synagogue near San Diego. How did that affect uh, the uh, Squirrel Hill community? You know, anytime there's anything, it brings people back, back to that day. Um, the hostage situation in Colleyville, Texas, uh, last weekend, I think brought people back. But it's a little bit less every time. and. You know, to some extent, this is a normal that, that Jews live with, that there is so much anti-Semitism, so much antipathy toward Jews. Um, you know, I don't think it's something that American Presbyterians or Lutherans or, uh, you know, Methodists think about in the way that Jews have to think about it, that walking into one of our worship spaces can feel a little bit dangerous. And, you know, people are different temperamentally. Some people are more nervous, more alarmed, um, more susceptible to feeling that morning's trauma again, and some people it doesn't live in their bones as much. But I think everyone, uh, everyone who lived through that, I didn't, by the way, I want to be very clear, you know, I, I wasn't in Pittsburgh, and I'm not from Pittsburgh. I didn't go there till the following month to begin reporting. But for people who did live through it, I, I think that, that 
any new episode of anti-Jewish violence um, brings them back at least a little bit. Now, you, as you reported this book and you met people and, and learned about the community, uh, is there anything that stands out for you, something you didn't know or something that kind of was really interesting to you? Um, I mean, all of it, you know, I think, I think there's a, it was a lot of fun in the book. I mean, I, I was always smiling whenever I saw the prominence of therapy dogs in the aftermath of, of trauma in America. Now the animals always come out and as a dog lover, I think that's pretty great. I mean, my feeling is that, you know, the more dogs in public life, the better, ideally not in response to, uh, to, to death and disaster, but in general, um, dogs are a good thing in my book, well, literally in my book, but also figuratively in my book. So that was cool. Um, it was beautiful to see how many different strains of Jewish life came together to help each other, Orthodox, uh, ultra-Orthodox, or Haredi, as they're called, um, conservative, reform, reconstructionist, renewal, um, kind of, you know, there was a, there's a woman who does earth-based Jewish practices that kind of fuse Wicca and Judaism, who was quite active in helping people recover and heal emotionally afterwards. You just see so many different flavors of things coming, coming out. And the creativity of the Jewish community was so beautiful. And then just the, the, the sort of endless friendliness of Pittsburgh. It is, really is a great city. They deny that they're Midwestern, but um, in terms of their friendliness, they feel much more Midwestern than, than, than they feel like part of my native Northeast, much as I love it. So, uh, you know, I learned a great deal. I'm, although my dad's from Pittsburgh, I'm not, and I hadn't been there very much growing up. And having this opportunity to make 32 trips to Pittsburgh over a year and a half and interview so many people, was just a it, was a, it was a great thing for me. Well, we've been speaking with Mark Oppenheimer. He is the author of Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting and the Soul of a Neighborhood. Mark, thank you for joining us. You bet. Thank you for having me. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.